0: You're listening to the Bank of Marquis Movie
1: Podcast. Come closer. I want to talk to you. I'm going to tell you an astounding story. The story of the Maltese falcon. 600 years, the falcon has carried the mystery of a fabulous wealth under its grotesque wings. I could tell you a thousand tales of the men and women who have hunted this evil bird. But every story has the same ending. Murder. Well, they certainly rarely make
0: trailers like that anymore. Hi, my name is Andy, and I'm a movie fan. And you are listening to the Bank of Marquis Movie Podcast. A podcast where I will share my love of film with you. I break down the movies into three eras, classic Hollywood, which is movies before 1960, new Hollywood, which is the movies of the 60s, 70s, and 80s, and the modern era. I love them all, whether it be a classic old movie like the movie we'll be talking about today, The Maltese Falcon from 1941, to the movies of the 60s, 70s, and 80s, which were the movies that I grew up on, to modern movies of today. Certainly, I'm a big fan of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, but also of films of directors like Christopher Nolan. So what will you expect from this podcast? Well, a number of things. I might deep dive into a movie, like we're going to do today. We're going to take a deep dive into the Maltese Falcon. Or I may look at an era. Or an actor. Or a director. Or a genre. Or a cinematic universe. Whatever we do, I can guarantee you one thing. There will be spoilers. So just be warned. I would love it if this thing became interactive. So feel free to reach out to me at bankofmarquis at gmail.com. That's B-A-N-K-O-F-M-A-R-Q-U-I-S at gmail.com. Also, check out my website, www.bankofmarquis.com. So let's have some fun. Let's talk about some movies. And uh, let's see where this thing goes. So let's get started with The Maltese Falcon. Let's start with some history, shall we? The Maltese Falcon is based on a five-part serialized novel produced in 1929 by writer Dashiell Hammett. It was immediately made into a low-budget pre-code film in 1931, and then again in 1936 as Satan Met a Lady, with Betty Davis in the lead female role, the femme fatale, as it were. Warner Bros. producer Hal Wallace decided to take another shot at this story when first-time director John Huston, we'll talk about him in a little bit, convinced Wallace that he could remake the film with a tighter script and better acting. Wallace agreed and tapped one of his main players, George Raft, to play Detective Sam Spade. But then Raft dropped out of the project because he didn't want to be directed by a first-time director, which was fine with Houston because he wanted his buddy Humphrey Bogart to play the part. Wallace agreed, Bogart agreed, and Houston and Bogart went on to make The Maltese Falcon. Now, the film opens with a long scroll talking about uh, the Knights Templar and Malta and a king and they had to pay him money and a tribute and all that kind of stuff. And it sets the tone, which is fine. But all we care about at this point is that a golden falcon encrusted with jewels was made and then lost. So that's the thing. That's the MacGuffin. For those of you who don't know what a MacGuffin is, that's a term that Alfred Hitchcock made up to signify the thing that moves the plot forward. What is the one thing that all these people want and they're willing to lie, cheat, steal, murder for it? It's the thing that propels the plot forward. A good example of MacGuffin is the briefcase in Pulp Fiction or the uranium in uh, Notorious. Once we set up the MacGuffin, the Maltese Falcon, we dissolve to a shot of modern day San Francisco. Well, at least modern day 1941 San Francisco. And we pan across the city to a window that says Spade and Archer. You then fade inside the office and there is Sam Spade working at his desk. Spade, of course, portrayed by Humphrey Bogart. So before we get going with the movie, let's talk a little bit about Humphrey Bogart. So, Humphrey Bogart. Now, I have a tendency to work backwards with stars from the 30s, 40s, and 50s. I encounter them later on in their career in the 60s and 70s and then start working my way backwards for them. And Humphrey Bogart is no exception to this rule. I first ran across him when my parents and I watched a showing of The African Queen on TV sometime in the early 70s. I really enjoyed his role and the movie and started working backwards trying to find him in other movies. I soon discovered The Treasure of the Sierra Madre and Casablanca, of course. And then one day I stumbled across The Maltese Falcon and his portrayal of Sam Spade. But for those of you who don't know the history of Humphrey Bogart, he was born in New York City, was educated at Trinity School, and then sent to Phillips Academy in Andover, Massachusetts, where he was promptly expelled. And that seems to be a recurring theme for Bogie and a lot of these actors in the 30s and 40s. He knocked around the theater world in the 1920s, and he gained a contract with Fox in 1930 and made his feature film debut in a 10-minute short, but then was promptly released after two years. He kicked around for about five more years in minor stage and film roles, and had his breakthrough role as Duke Mantee in the Broadway stage version of The Petrified Forest, only because the star, Leslie Howard, who co-starred with Bogey on the stage play, insisted that Bogey played Duke Mantee and not Edward G. Robinson, who the studio wanted. Well, anyways, Bogey got that part. The film was a major success and led to a contract with Warners. And from 1936 to 1940, Bogart appeared in 28 films... Usually as a gangster, usually in parts that George Raft turned down, including, most famously, Sam Spade and the Maltese Falcon. Obviously, after the Maltese Falcon, he continued working in Hollywood, in movies such as Casablanca, The Treasure of the Sierra Madre, Sabrina, To Have and Have Not, The African Queen, oftentimes with Lauren Bacall, who would become his real-life love. More on Bogie and Bacall in other episodes. And he continued working right up until his death at 57, at the age of 57. Again, there's much, much more about Bogey I can talk about, which I'm sure I'll bring up in other podcasts. As a side note, as a kid growing up in the 60s and 70s, my knowledge of film history was often influenced by cameos of major stars of the golden age of Hollywood in old Bugs Bunny and Looney Tunes cartoons, like this clip of Bogey from the 1947 Looney Tunes cartoon Slick Hair.
1: Yes sir, Mr. Bogart. Uh, we have some very nice... Cut the gab and bring me an order of fried rabbit. Oh, I'm very sorry, Mr. Bogart, but we're just fresh out of rabbit. <laughs> we got some very nice quape is I said I want rabbit, and I'll give you just 20 minutes to bring it, or else... <sighs> yes sir, Mr. Bogart, the customer's always white. <laughs> All right, back to the movie. Yes, sweetheart? There's a girl wants to see you. Her name's Wonderley. Customer? I guess so. You'll want to see her anyway. She's a knockout. Sure in, Effie, darling. Sure in.
0: Okay, that of course is the unmistakable voice of Humphrey Bogart as Sam Spade, and the salty Lee Patrick as his secretary, Effie. Miss Wonderly asks Spade to trail Floyd Thursby, who allegedly ran off with her younger sister. In the middle of the conversation, Spade's partner, Miles Archer, comes in and is instantly smitten with Miss Wonderly. Archer quickly accepts the assignment, though Spade hits Miss Wonderly up for $200 in payment. Cut to a scene of later in the evening, Archer is taken by surprise and shot and killed. In a very interesting scene that follows, we see a phone that is ringing. A hand reaches out and grabs the phone and pulls it off screen. The camera stays with the empty desk where the phone once was, and we hear Sam Spade's end of the phone conversation, where he is told about Archer's demise. Director John Huston does a nice job of staying in that blank space and lets us, the audience, feel the conversation, even though we're only hearing one part, but not really seeing anything. We then see Bogie as Sam Spade sit up into frame. He is very contemplative in the shadows of his room. It's wonderful direction by Huston. So this is probably a good time to talk a little bit about the director, John Huston. All right. John Huston. You know, one word that describes John Huston is unique. Uh, There really wasn't many like him in Hollywood then or now. Again, as like Humphrey Bogart, I came to John Huston backwards, discovering him in the 70s. Uh, Unfortunately, I think my first encounter with him was as the log giver in Battle for the Planet of the Apes, and then probably as Noah in The Bible. I think soon thereafter, I saw him play Noah Cross in Chinatown, and then quickly saw him in Wind of the Lion, Sherlock Holmes in New York. Oh, he was in the 70s disaster flick, Tentacles. Uh, There's one not to be missed. And then certainly heard him as Gandalf in the Return of the King animated film from about 1980. And then I realized, of course, he was a director, and I saw Victory, which was a Sylvester Stallone World War II soccer POW movie with Pele. He directed Annie weird. Uh, Pritzy's Honor, which was great, but even going backwards, The Man Who Would Be King, The Macintosh Man, The Life and Times of Judge Roy Bean, all the way back to uh, Farewell to Arms, Moby Dick, Beat the Devil, African Queen, Red Badge of Courage, Key Largo, Treasure of the Sierra Madre, which I thought is just brilliant, and I'll get to it at some point, and then back to his film debut as the Maltese Falcon. So I truly went Backwards with John Houston, so once I went all the way back with him, I started digging in and started figuring out who is this guy, right? And John Houston was nominated ten times for an Oscar, and he won two, both for Treasure of the Sierra Madre, which I'm sure I'll get to in a future podcast because I love, love, love that movie. He was born in Nevada, Missouri, in 1906. It does come from an interesting family line. Uh, legend has it that uh, the town John was born in was won by his grandfather in a poker game. Uh, His father was the noted actor Walter Houston, which we'll talk about, I'm sure. His mother was Rhea Gore, who was a newspaper woman who traveled all around the country, kind of a Nellie Bly kind of person. Uh, By everything I read, he was a frail and sickly child and was once placed in a sanitarium due to both an enlarged heart and kidney ailment. Now, he made a miraculous recovery and quit school at the age of 14 to become a full-fledged boxer and eventually won the Amateur Lightweight Boxing Championship of California, earning his trademark broken nose along the way. He was a restless person in the 20s, not really settling into a job or a marriage, and eventually landing in London and Paris where he um, studied painting and sketching and became a homeless beggar. Returned to the U.S. in 1933, he realized it was time to hone his obvious writing skills, and he started collaborating on a few scripts with Warner Brothers. Warner's was impressed with his talents and signed him on as both screenwriter and director of the Maltese Falcon in 41. After the Maltese Falcon, he served in World War II as a Signal Corps lieutenant and went on to helm a number of film documentaries for the U.S. government. After World War II, again, he directed things like The Treasure Sierra Madre, Key Largo, African Queen, all three of those with bogey. He lived a macho outdoors life and is often compared in style and flamboyancy to Ernest Hemingway and Orson Welles. He was, in fact, the source of inspiration for Clint Eastwood in the 1990 film White Hunter Black Heart*, which is actually what inspired me to go back and start reading up about John Huston. Um, he's the father of Angelica and Danny Houston, who are actors... I'm sure we'll talk more about the Houston family in future podcasts.
1: Hello, Sam. I figured you'd want to see it before we took him away. Oh, thanks, Tom. What happened? Got him right through the pump with this. It's a Webley. English, isn't it? Yeah, Webley Forsby, forty-five automatic, eight shot. They don't make them anymore. How many gone out of it? Just one. Let's see, uh, shot up here, standing like you are with his back to the fence. The man who shot him stood here. Went over backwards, taking the top of the fence with him, and went on down the hill and got caught on that rock, That it? And that's it. The blast burned his coat.
0: That, of course, is Ward Bond as Detective Tom Polhouse. You might remember him as Bert the Cop in It's a Wonderful Life. Well, now the plot really starts heating up in earnest. The detectives come and question Spade because not only is Archer dead, but so is Thursby, and since they think that Thursby killed Archer, they think that Spade killed thursby archer's wife with whom spade's been having an affair comes to see spade because she thinks he killed archer so they could spend the rest of their life together and then of course he gets a call from miss wonderly the plot thickens he then goes off to meet miss wonderly and learns that her true name is bridget o'shaughnessy and in this scene it's a perfect example of film noir dialogue perfectly acted by bogey and mary astor
1: that story i told you yesterday Just a story. Oh, that. Well, we we didn't exactly believe your story, Miss. What is your name? Wonderly or LeBlanc? It's
0: really O'Shaughnessy, Bridget O'Shaughnessy.
1: We didn't exactly believe your story, Miss O'Shaughnessy. We believed your $200.
0: Besides The Maltese Falcon, I know of zero movies that Mary Astor has been in before or since. What I know about her is a a little light. But what I've been able to find out is that her off-screen notoriety was instrumental in her being cast in the role of Bridget O'Shaughnessy. She had been in several scandals concerning her marriage. So, Mary Astor was born in 1906 to a German immigrant father and American mother. Her parents were very ambitious for her as they recognized Mary's beauty and knowing if they played the cards right, they could make her famous, kind of the original stage parents, as it were. Pushed Mary into various beauty contests, and luck would have it, a Hollywood agent saw Mary one of these contests and signed her at the age of 14. In 1924, she landed a plum assignment opposite the great John Barrymore in the film Beau Brummel. This not only launched her career, but also launched a lively and very public affair with Barrymore. In the next 10 years, she was a darling of the cinema, appearing in a film such as Red Dust, Convention City, Man of Iron, and the Prisoner of Zenda. She was one of the lucky actresses who was able to make the transition from silent to talkies, and in 1941, she landed the role in The Maltese Falcon and also won the Academy Award that year, but not for her role in The Maltese Falcon, but for her role of Sandra Kovac in The Great Lie. Gotta admit, I've never seen it. I have no idea. And that was pretty much the peak of her stardom. Her star soon began to fall after that. Her first husband died, she had three divorces, Uh, she attempted suicide, she was alcoholic, and this led to smaller and smaller roles. And her final fling on the silver screen was as Jewel Mayhew in Hush, Hush, Sweet Charlotte in 1964. All in all, she appeared in 123 movies, most of them before The Maltese Falcon. She lived out her remaining days confined to the motion picture country home where she died of a heart attack on September 25th, 1987, at the age of 81.
1: Get on with it! Yes! Get on with it! right,
0: Alright, alright, let's get back to the movie. So, Spade goes back to his office and is visited by another man, Joel Cairo, the great Peter Lorre. More on him in a minute. They do an interesting thing here. They introduce him by a gardenia-scented calling card, which instantly tabs his character as flamboyant, effeminate, and probably gay, but isn't really mentioned after that. So Cairo offers Spade $5,000 if the private eye can retrieve a figurine of a blackbird. So when Spade leaves then, there's a cool scene right after that. Spade leaves the office, and he's followed by a mysterious man. He gives his pursuer the slip, and the grin and the twinkle in the eye on Bogey's face after he gives this man the slip is, uh, is fun. He then goes and meets up again with O'Shaughnessy and casually mentions that Cairo has contacted him. Um, O'Shaughnessy gets extremely nervous when she hears this, and Spade seems to enjoy seeing her nervous and is drawn to kissing her. Again, more fine directing by John Houston. He does a nice job showing Spade's internal struggle as Sam is torn between falling for O'Shaughnessy and keeping his distance.
1: I don't care what your secrets are, but I can't go ahead without more confidence in you than I've got now. You've got to convince me that you know what this is all about, that you aren't just fiddling around, hoping it'll all come out right in the end. Can't you trust me a little, all right? Well, how much is a little? What are you waiting for? Well, I've got to talk to Joel Cairo. You can see him tonight. Spade heads
0: back to his office with O'Shaughnessy, and Cairo is there waiting for them. Probably a good time to talk about Peter Laurie. All right, got to admit, I'm pretty sure this is the first time I ever heard about Peter Laurie.
1: I haven't seen such a beautiful bubble since I was a child. Yep, another
0: Bugs Bunny Looney Tune cartoons. This one is a 1941 Hollywood Steps Out. If that wasn't the first time I saw Laurie, then it's either in Walt Disney's 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea or as Lucius Emery in Erwin Allen's Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea, both of which I caught on TV sometime in the late 60s. I then found him in a bunch of old horror movies from the 40s and 50s, Films like The Beast with Five Fingers and The Raven. And then I stumbled across the horrendous We All Just Need a Paycheck movie, the 1963 horror comedy, The Comedy of Terrors with Vincent Price. Uh, It was Laurie, Boris Karloff, Basil rathbone all agreed to be in this turkey to squeeze a few last bucks out of their careers. I then caught Casablanca and realized that this guy actually is a pretty good actor. And then from Casablanca came the Maltese Falcon and and another John huston Humphrey Bogart joint, uh, Beat the Devil. And then, of course, I did watch some of the Mr. Moto shorts where Laurie played an Asian detective. And then I ran across the wonderful 1931 film M. Fritz Lang cast Laurie as a psychopathic child killer, and he is just chilling in this film. So... You know, Laurie's, you know, distinct voice and looks made him a Hollywood icon. He's remembered to this day, like this part of the Robin Williams genie riff in Aladdin. I
1: can't bring people back from the dead. It's not a pretty picture.
0: I don't like doing it! Laurie died from a stroke in 1964 at the age of 59. (laughs) Well, by now, the plot of this movie starts getting really complicated. Spade is still being followed by the mysterious man, who, as it turns out, is muscle for the fat man. His name is Wilmer Cook, and he is portrayed by Elijah Cook, Jr., and he invites him over to meet the fat man, Casper Gutman, portrayed by Sidney Greenstreet. Gutman tells Spade about the legend of the Maltese Falcon. But before we head there, let's get some brief background on Elijah Cook, Jr., and Sidney Greenstreet. Let's start with Greenstreet. He was a native of Sandwich Kent, England, and a member of the Theater Guild, and appeared in numerous plays in England and the U.S. before making his film debut in The Maltese Falcon at the age of 62, I believe. He would go on to appear in 24 movies, eight with Peter Lorre, including Casablanca, and he was also in Christmas in Connecticut. He retired from film in 1949 and passed away four years later at the age of 75 from Complications... From diabetes. I think the most unsung actor of these five lead performances in The Maltese Falcon is Elijah Cook Jr., uh, who was a mainstay of gangster picks like The Maltese Falcon and The Big Sleep and of westerns like Shane before becoming a mainstay on TV. He is a veritable that guy. You've seen him. I know you have. Whether it was in Peter Gunn or The Fugitive or Rawhide or Gunsmoke or Star Trek or Bonanza all the way up through his recurring role as Ice Pick Hofstetler in Magnum P.I. He lived to the ripe old age of 91, passed away in 1995.
1: What do you know, sir, about the order of the Hospital of St. John of Jerusalem, later known as the Knights of Rhodes and other things? Crusaders or something, weren't they? In 1539, these crusading knights persuaded Emperor Charles V to give them the island of Malta. He made but one condition, that they pay him each year the tribute of a falcon, an acknowledgment that Malta was still under spade. You follow me? huh. hit upon the happy thought of sending him for his first year's tribute. Not an insignificant live bird, but a glorious golden falcon, crusted from head to foot with the finest jewels in their covers.
0: Well, John Houston certainly knew what he was doing in selecting Green Street for his part. He, This is a seven-minute long scene that's basically a monologue from Green Street, and it's absolutely fascinating to watch. The other interesting thing here is that Houston decided to do this seven-minute scene in just one long shot, though the studio insisted that he put in a couple of cutaway reaction shots of Bogey in the scene. So it's like what Alfred Hitchcock does. Uh, You're watching a scene, you're watching what Green Street is saying, but you're not really catching what's really happening in the scene. Bogey getting drugged. So Spade passes out, Gutman and Wilmer runs to Spade's office to to see if they can find the Falcon. Spade wakes up, he gets over there, the office is all torn apart. Just then, an injured man, identified as a Captain Jacoby, shows up at the office, he drops a package on the floor, and then promptly dies. Uh, Side note, this cameo of Captain Jacoby is played by John Houston's father, Walter Houston, as a good luck cameo. Well, Spade opens the package, and sure enough, what's in there but the Falcon? He is called away and is smart enough to know that he's probably being sent on a wild goose chase, so he drops the Falcon off at a bus station locker and then mails himself the locker ticket, so if he gets caught and frisked, they won't find that on him. Well, now things are really winding up or winding down, depending on which way you want to look at it. Uh, Spade gets back to his apartment. O'Shaughnessy is there waiting for him. They go inside, and inside the apartment is Wilmer, Cairo, and Gutman. Now, this is the key part of this whole movie. The next 20 minutes is a scene of just the five of them talking about the Falcon, explaining the plot, but it's just a fascinating scene with five very good actors playing off each other. I'm going to sum up really quickly what the um, plot points here are. Gutman hands Spade $10,000 in cash in exchange for the bird. Spade takes the money, but in addition says that they need a fall guy to take the blame for the murders of at least Thursby and Jacoby, if not Archer as well. Reluctantly, both Cairo and Gutman agree to make Wilmer the fall guy. This doesn't go over well with Wilmer, as you can imagine. Spade places a call to his secretary Effie and asks her to go to the office and pick up the figurine. Effie brings it to Spade's apartment and Spade's hands the package to Gutman, who at this time is overwhelmed with excitement. Gutman checks the figurine, but quickly learns that it is a fake. This plot twist does not sit well with Cairo. You. It's you who
1: bungled it. You and your stupid attempt to buy it! Temida found out how valuable it was! <laughs> no wonder we had such an easy time stealing it! You you imbecile! You bloated idiot! You stupid fat You!
0: <laughs> Gutman quickly regains his composure and decides to go back to Europe to continue his search. Cairo goes with him. During this big, long speech... Wilmer manages to escape from Spade's apartment. Spade phones to the police department and tells them the entire story that Wilmer killed Jacoby and Thursby under orders from Gutman and Cairo. Afterwards, Spade angrily asks Bridget O'Shaughnessy why she killed Miles Archer. At first, O'Shaughnessy denies this accusation, but seeing that she cannot lie anymore, she drops the act. She wanted to get Thursby out of the picture so that she could have the Falcon for herself, so she hired Archer to scare him off. When Thursby didn't leave, she killed Archer and attempted to pin the crime on Thursby. When Thursday was later killed, she knew that Gutman was in town and that she needed another protector, so she came to Spade. However, she says that she's also in love with Spade and would have come back to him anyhow. Spade coldly replies that the penalty for murder is most likely 20 years.
1: If you get a good break, you'll be out of Tehachapi in 20 years and you can come back to me then. I hope they don't hang you, precious, for that sweet neck. You're not... Yes, Angel, I'm going to send you over. Chances are you'll get off with life. That means if you're a good girl, you'll be out in 20 years. I'll be waiting for you. If they hang you, I'll always remember you. Spade goes on to
0: say that while he despised Miles Archer, the man was his partner, and that he's going to turn O'Shaughnessy into the police for his murder. O'Shaughnessy begs him not to, but he replies that he has no
1: choice. You don't love me. I won't play the sap for you. You know it's not like that. You can't say that. You've never played square with me for half an hour to stretch since I've known you. You know, down deep in your heart that in spite of anything I've done, I love you. I don't care who loves who. I won't play the sap for you. I won't walk at Thursby's and I don't know how many other footsteps. You killed Miles and you're going over for it.
0: When the police finally show up at Spade's apartment, Spade immediately turns over O'Shaughnessy as Archer's killer. Spade also hands over the Falcon to the police as evidence. Finally, with all the bad guys in custody and Spade's name reputation cleared, Pullhouse asks Spade one last question. Harry,
1: what is it? The uh, stuff that dreams are made of. Huh?
0: have it, The Maltese Falcon. The Maltese Falcon premiered on October 3, 1941 and was produced for a budget of $375,000 and grossed $1.7 million worldwide. The film was universally praised upon its release. Variety called it one of the best examples of actionful and suspenseful melodramatic storytelling in cinematic form, And Bowsley Crowther of the New York Times said it is the best mystery thriller of the year. In 1989, The Maltese Falcon was selected for preservation in the United States Film Registry by the Library of Congress, and it is currently ranked number 31 on the AFI's list of top 100 films. And the line, The stuff that dreams are made of, is ranked as the 14th greatest movie quote of all time. Uh, You might notice that much of this movie is filmed over Humphrey Bogart's shoulder so that the audience can be in on his point of view. And finally... Most importantly, what did the Bank of Marquis think of this movie? Well, it's a ten out of ten, and you can read my full review at my website www.bankofmarquis.com. Obviously, I wouldn't have spent this much time getting a podcast together if I didn't love the film. Next time on the Bank of Marquis Movie Podcast, it's coming.
1: From the deep, dark recesses of the mind of Mel Brooks. I love him. Young Frankenstein. Fly,
0: can you hear me? Give my creation life! Sky means business.
1: Starring Gene Wilder as Dr. Frankenstein. That's Frankenstein. But what about your grandfather's work, sir? My grandfather's work was doo-doo!
0: Peter Boyle as the monster.
1: Marty Feldman as Igor. My grandfather used to work for your grandfather. I'm sure we'll get along splendidly. And Madeline Kahn as Elizabeth. Where am I? Calm down. What are you going to do to me? I'm not afraid of you. Listen. I have to be back by 11.30. I'm expecting a very important call. female Mel Brooks, Young Frankenstein. Yes, I think we could all use a good laugh. But don't see it alone. Don't miss Young Frankenstein. Personally directed by Mel Blazing Saddles Brooks. In black and white. No offense.
0: That's what's coming up next time on the Bank of Marquis movie podcast. If you'd like to reach out to me, email me at bankofmarquis at gmail.com. That's B A N K O F M A R Q U I S at gmail.com. And check out my website, www.bankofmarquis.com. And until next time... I'm watching you, Wazowski. Always watching.